Good morning. You can turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Mark, chapter 11. Again, that is the book of Mark, chapter 11. In our study of this book, we have arrived at what we call Passion Week. That is the last week of the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth, the week leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. On the Sunday of that week, he makes the walk, the journey from a town called Bethany where he is staying to Jerusalem to visit the temple. We read of that visit in the first 11 verses of Mark 11. On the second day of the week, the Monday, he makes the return trip from Bethany to Jerusalem again to visit the temple. And we read and learn of that visit in verses 12 through 19. And then on the Tuesday, he again makes a journey from Bethany to Jerusalem, visits the temple. And we read of that visit on the Tuesday, beginning in verse 20 of chapter 11. And it continues all the way to the end of chapter 13. It's a busy day. Lots happens, transpires on the Tuesday of Passion Week. And we are in the midst of our study of this day. Last Sunday, we looked at verses 20 through 25. And so we're going to pick up our reading now, the narrative beginning in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. 
I have spent most of my life within a two-hour drive of Niagara Falls, called Rainbow Falls, the far side of the border. Uh, Allison has spent most of her life within a 20-minute drive of, uh, of Niagara Falls. Annually, over 12 million tourists visit Niagara Falls. And to be honest, I don't know what all the fuss is about. Why is that? Hear this truth, please. Hear it. Hear it clearly. And I pray it seeps in. Proximity and familiarity have dulled my sense of amazement. Proximity and familiarity have dulled my sense of amazement. 600,000 gallons of water pour over Niagara Falls every second. I couldn't care less. Proximity and familiarity. You all know that to be true, don't you? Proximity and familiarity, they dull our sense of wonder, marvel, amazement. We moved to Glen Rose just over four years ago. And obviously, when we moved here, uh, everything was new. Uh, Everything was exciting. Uh, We got excited about every little thing, absorbed with every little detail, taking pictures of everything in sight. There's an armadillo. Stop. Take a picture. I know it's dead, but get the picture quick before it moves. (laughs) Excited about everything. Everything was new. Everything was novel. But I have to confess, four years have passed, and the enthusiasm has dwindled. Proximity and familiarity, they dull our sense of wonder. We had family here last year, spring last year, and driving with him in the car, every 10 minutes, stop, I want to take a picture, stop, I want to take a picture. And I'm asking myself, a picture of what? They were amazed of things that no longer amaze us. They saw things that we no longer see. Let me repeat it again. Proximity and familiarity dull our sense of amazement. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. Here it is. The same holds true in the realm of the spiritual. The same holds true when it comes to the things of God. I have read that verse so many times It no longer moves me. I have sung that chorus, that song, so many times. It no longer grips me. I have partaken of the Lord's Supper so many times that it no longer stirs me. I have heard of my sin, the depth of my depravity. I know it very well, but I have heard it so many times. It no longer breaks my heart. I have heard of Christ's atonement, his bloody sacrifice, so many times, it no longer warms my heart. I have heard of God's mercy, his amazing grace, so many times that it no longer melts my heart. Proximity and familiarity, if we are not extremely careful, can dull our sense of amazement even when it comes to the things of God. Now, this struggle, this problem, is compounded by a fact 
that is true of all of us. The fact is this. We crave the experience of amazement. Each one of us in this room right here, you cannot deny it. We're wired this way. We crave, we long for, we yearn for the sense, the experience of amazement. The devil tempts us through this world to seek that experience of amazement in anything and everything but God. And so some of us, some of us seek it in a new cause, a new experience, a new relationship. Some of us seek it in materialism, a new house, a new jacket, a new car, a new gadget. Some of us seek it in the realm of virtual reality. We just, we just zone out and have absorbed by the computer and spend countless hours in a virtual world somewhere out there. Some of us seek it in the latest video game. Some of us seek it in mind-altering drugs. The devil will tempt us. He knows us well. The devil will tempt us to seek this experience of amazement in things in this world which were not designed to amaze us. The problem is this. The experience of these things, you know what it gives us? It does give us, give us a buzz. Not just the drugs. All these things give us a buzz. But the buzz is temporary. And these things ultimately leave us dissatisfied. These things ultimately leave us empty. And so what I am after this morning, in light of the text we've just read, we've just read what I am after is your sense of amazement. Last Sunday, I was after your mind as we wrestled with prayer and true, true biblical prayer in light of the preceding verses. But today, I'm after your sense of amazement. I'm after your sense of marvel. I'm after your sense of wonder. That's where we're going to end up. But this is a road. This is a journey we're going to take. That is the end point. But we need to start with these verses, and we need to begin by wrestling with their content to make sure we understand them. So we're starting. We're embarking on this journey. You know where we're going. You know what the end is that we have in view, but we want to begin by making sure we understand these verses, and I want us to notice five things that happen. I think it's a good way to approach this text, a faithful way, an insightful way. If we just notice and get our minds around five things that happen in these verses, the first thing we need to notice is this. There is a hostile attack. We read of that in chapter 11. Verses 27 and 28, a hostile attack. Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem for the third consecutive day. He visited the temple on Sunday. He visited it again on Monday. It is now Tuesday. He is again walking in the temple. The chief religious leaders in the nation of Israel, namely the priests, the scribes, and the elders, they approach the Lord Jesus, and they approach him with a question. We find the question in verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? They rephrase it. Or who gave you this authority to do them? What things are they talking about? They are referring to what had transpired on the previous day, the Monday. Jesus had come to the temple. He had overturned the tables. 
He had overturned the chairs. He had chased these merchants out of the temple. He had cleansed the temple. Here's the issue. These priests and these scribes and these elders, they are the official rulers in Israel. Not only are they the official rulers in Israel, they are the official rulers over the temple. In other words, when the Lord Jesus cleanses the temple, he is, by virtue of that act, criticizing whom? He is attacking whom? The priests, the scribes, and the elders. This is a public embarrassment. You have turned my house into a den of thieves. To whom is he speaking? To whom does he address these words? These religious leaders. They have been publicly embarrassed. And they come now to the Lord Jesus Christ with this question. By what authority did you do that? It's a hostile attack. They are looking to settle the score. Second thing I want you to notice. There's a loaded question. Chapter 11, verses 29 through 33, a loaded question. 29th verse, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. I've heard your question. By what authority do I do these things? Namely, by what authority did I publicly embarrass you, undermining your authority, challenging your authority when I cleanse the temple? I understand the question. But I have one for you. Answer me, verse 29, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's his question, verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? John, who's he talking about? He's referring to John the Baptist. We read of John the Baptist way back in the first chapter. John the Baptist was the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. He was the forerunner. He was the herald who ushered in, who prepared for the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. John, he baptized. It was a baptism of repentance. That was his message. That was the thrust of his preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here I have you, my scribes, my elders, my priests. And here's the question, and answer me. I want an answer to this. John's baptism, his message, and his proclamation of repentance. Where did it come from? By what authority? You've raised the issue of authority. Here's the question I'm asking, and I want an answer to it. By what authority did John do those things? His baptism, his message, his call to repentance. There's only two options. Was it from heaven? In other words, was it from God? Or was it from man? In other words, was he an imposter, semi-delusional? Those are your two options. Tell me. Answer me. And there they stand, these religious leaders, and they have a little consultation, don't they? We read it in verse 31. Uh, They discussed it with one another. No one jumps forward. No one leaps. No one's really over-anxious to give an answer. And they recognize, look, uh, we have only two options here. Uh, The first option is this, verse 31. We can say from heaven. And so we can answer his question, and we can acknowledge publicly that John's baptism, John's preaching, John's call to repentance was indeed from heaven. It was indeed from God. But we dare not do that. If we acknowledge that John's baptism was from God, from heaven, we are going to be publicly embarrassed yet again. Why? Because we rejected John. Herod killed him. We certainly didn't oppose it. We had no time for John. We portrayed John as a crazy man and absolutely rejected his preaching. How can we stand up now and say that his preaching, his baptism was from God? If we were to admit that, we would be opening ourselves to public ridicule and public embarrassment. 
So option number two is this. We can say that his baptism, his ministry, the authority behind it was simply man-made. It was a figment of his own imagination. This guy, was, he was indeed crazy. He was indeed delusional. He had deceived himself into thinking he was something he was not. And his message was unbiblical. His message was certainly not from God. His be- message was from man. But if we do that, we're going to be rejected. Because these people who are hearing this conversation... These people, the crowds around us who heard the question we put to Jesus and have now heard and witnessed the question he's put to us, they believe John was a prophet. And so if we state publicly that no, John's message and John's baptism was from man, uh, not only are we going to be embarrassed, we're going to be rejected. The public, people, the crowds, they are going to despise us. And so there are only two options. Either we say from heaven, but that would entail embarrassment. Or we say from man, well, that would entail ridicule and rejection. So here's what we need to do. We need to come up with a third option. We need to invent a new truth, which is actually an untruth. Verse 33, they answer Jesus. We do not know. Oh, they're so humble. Now, this is a guise of humility. To say they did not know was equivalent to rejecting the ministry and the message of John the Baptist. And look at Jesus' response, still in verse 33, right at the end. He said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now we mistake it. We make a huge mistake. If we think that Jesus has asked this question as a cleverly devised way to avoid answering a question he does not want to answer. It's not as though they have him between a rock and a hard place. His back is up against the temple wall. Tell us by what authority you do these things. Well, I'd really rather not tell you by what authority I do these things. And so he comes up with this question and makes it contingent upon them answering, knowing that they can't answer, and therefore knowing he can elude the entire ordeal. That is not what's going on here. Jesus has already answered the question. He has already proved it time and time again by his words and through his actions that he is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. You want to know by what authority I do these things? You already know by what authority I do these things. It is by God's authority. And so he does not ask this question to avoid giving an answer. He avoids answering the question, asking them this question which he knows they will not answer in order to send them a very clear message. The message is this. Look, you want to know by what authority I do these things. You're questioning it. You do not question it for intellectual reasons. You do not question it because of a lack of proof or a lack of evidence. Here's why you question it. It is a moral issue. It is the condition of your heart. And that is why you rejected John's message. That is why you refused to acknowledge that John did what he did, preached what he preached by God's authority. It is because of the condition of your heart. You do not possess the necessary heart condition to receive my answer. Now notice thirdly, We see a volatile parable, a volatile parable. Now, as you look down at your Bible, the page of your Bible, you're going to see a big number 12 there, aren't you? That indicates what? A chapter break. Small numbers, verses. Big numbers, chapters. They're not part of the original text. These big numbers identifying chapters and small numbers identifying verses, they were added centuries later to the Word of God. Why? Just to help by way of reference, right? Imagine trying to find a passage 
in the Bible without knowing the chapter and the verse. Good luck with that. And so these chapters and these verses were added to, to aid our reading and to find different texts. Here's the problem. They're not always placed in the best place. They're not always put in, 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 the, most, in, in the most ideal place. Here's a case in point. Chapter 12. It almost gives the idea, okay, new thought, new start. And so here I am, I'm doing my daily reading. I read chapter 11, I'm done with that. The next morning, I read chapter 12, and there's, they're disjointed. No, the, the, the chapter break, unfortunately, breaks the thought flow. There is absolute continuation here. Look at what we read in the very first verse. He began to speak to them. Who are the them? The same individuals who were introduced previously. The priests, the scribes. And the elders. So this is the same discussion. This is the same confrontation. Jesus has refused to answer their question because they have refused to answer his. And now he goes on the attack. He goes on the offensive. They have come to him challenging and questioning his authority. He turns the tables. And he now questions and challenges their authority with this volatile, or in other word, explosive parable. And in this parable, parable is basically a figure of speech. It is a figure of speech which employs an everyday experience. So something taken from everyday life, but is used as a comparison to demonstrate a spiritual truth or reality. And so the Lord Jesus employs something here from everyday life, not so common to us, but very common to the people to whom he's speaking. He says, imagine this, there's a man who plants a vineyard. They would all go, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've done that, or I know someone who's done that, or I've worked in a vineyard. There's a man, he plants a vineyard. This man, he leases out this vineyard, which is his. He planted it. He's tending it. He leases it out to tenants. So he entrusts it to others, and off he goes on a journey. He's living elsewhere. Season has come. There's a harvest. He decides it's time to collect some of the fruit from the vineyard. And so he sends a servant to gather some of the fruit, to go to the tenants and say, look, the man who planted this vineyard entrusted it to you. You are the tenants. You serve him. You work for him. He has sent me to come now and gather some of the fruit. Hand it over. What do these men do? And you can imagine the shock on the part of his audience. They're following him perfectly here. They understand this story. This is a story from everyday life. But what they are about to hear is absolutely shocking. The tenants beat the servant and send him away empty-handed. You can imagine their shock. That is unimaginable. And sometime later, the owner sends another servant, yet another servant, yet another servant. Some of these the tenants take and they beat. Some of these they actually kill. And finally, the owner says, I've only got one left, my beloved son. Surely they will listen to him. And he sends his beloved son. The tenants see him coming. They reason to themselves, here's the heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Fascinating story. And then he asks a pointed question. What do you think? What will the owner do? What is the owner going to do? Imagine this scenario, and imagine you're in his position. How would you react? What do you think is coming? He answers it clearly in verse 9. He will destroy those tenants, and he will give the vineyard to another. Interesting little story, but it is a parable. 
It is, a, it is an experience taken from everyday life which is designed to convey a spiritual truth. The spiritual truth is this. The man who plants the vineyard is God Almighty. The tenants who are caring for this vineyard are the scribes and the elders and the priests within Israel, the covenant community, the vineyard which God planted centuries before at Mount Sinai. The servants whom he sends to collect the fruit, these are the prophets, Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah, culminating in the last, John the Baptist. The leaders in Israel, the scribes, the elders, and the priests, their predecessors, and now present, how had they responded and reacted to these messengers from God, these prophets? Some they had abused, some they had bloodied and beaten, and some they had murdered. Finally, God says, I will send my beloved son. Interesting that Jesus uses that term beloved here because it's only found in two other places in the book of Mark. We hear it at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We hear it again on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is pointing to himself. The son has come. And now understand, he is saying to the scribes, the elders, and the priests in the audience of all, you are the tenants. And what you are doing to me is precisely what I have described in this parable. You are rejecting me. You are plotting my death. Here is my question for you, verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What do you think God is going to do? What do you think my father is going to do? Friend, the gloves are off. This is a down and out boxing match, if you like. And the Lord Jesus, with two blows, is about to lay these men to the ground. Here's the first. He lands it right on the chin. What do you think God will do? Two things. He is coming to destroy you. And he will give the vineyard to others. In the context of the book of Mark, To whom is he referring? His disciples, the apostles, the new vineyard, the new covenant community, which is going to be established, founded upon the ministry of the apostles and the prophets, of which the apostle speaks in Ephesians chapter 2. This is what's going to happen. It is a volatile parable. This is an explosive parable. He is attacking them publicly, unmasking them publicly. And he is foretelling their destruction, a destruction which he will describe in minute detail in the 13th chapter, a destruction which will happen just 35, 40 years after this event, after this conversation, when the Roman Empire will send its legions and Jerusalem will be destroyed and decimated. The temple will be burnt to the ground and these chief, these scribes, these elders and these priests, that is the religious elite leadership within the nation of Israel, will be absolutely absolutely decimated. This is volatile. This is downright explosive. The fourth thing I want you to notice, here's the second blow. First one puts them to their knees. Second one knocks them right out. Chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. There is a pointed or a barbed, a pointed scripture. Verse 10, he asks a question. Have you not read this scripture? I think the Lord Jesus uses employs sarcasm on occasion, irony. Here's sarcasm. Have you not read this scripture? You run around 
and you think you are the religious leadership within the nation of Israel. You are the elite, the scribes, the priests, and the elders. You know the law, the Torah. You have the Old Testament. Have you not read? Do you not understand the book that you possess? And he quotes from Psalm 118. Fascinating, because it's the second quotation from this psalm. When the Lord Jesus, on his first visit, his first ride on that donkey into Jerusalem, the crowds receive him, Hosanna. They quote from Psalm, they sing Psalm 118. Now Jesus takes everybody back to Psalm 118, and he quotes from verses 22-23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118 is a celebration of the Messiah's coronation. It is a celebration of the the coronation, the exaltation of God's Son, God's anointed one. But the psalmist makes it clear in Psalm 118, a very clearly messianic psalm, he makes it clear that prior to that exaltation, the Son of God, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, will suffer humiliation and rejection. And now the Lord Jesus, he grabs onto that prophecy and he says, look, the stone, it's him. That the builders, that's you. It's the same as the tenants in the parable. You have rejected. Here's what's actually going to happen. That stone is going to become the cornerstone. It's going to become the foundation of a new edifice, the foundation of a new temple, the foundation of a new building, the foundation of a new covenant community. And this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. But have you not read it? He's given them a parable describing them, their rejection of all the prophets culminating in the rejection of John the Baptist and their rejection of him, the Son of God. And he has forewarned, he has prophesied that judgment is coming. Now the second blow. Have you not read? Are you that blind? Do you not understand? That prophecy is in the midst of being fulfilled right now. And do you not see yourselves in it? Do you not understand that your very words, your very actions, everything that is transpiring right now at this moment has been foretold? Can you not see it? Now notice the fifth and final thing. There is a dreadful response. Verse 12. They were seeking to arrest him. Again, that's the scribes, the priests, uh, the elders. They were seeking to arrest him, Jesus, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Can you imagine their their public humiliation? It, it, it It just keeps building. First of all, There's the whole experience on the previous day involving the temple and Jesus daring to cleanse it, uh, thereby usurping and undermining their authority. They challenge him. They call him out in front of everyone. He turns the tables by asking them a question they dare not answer, thereby revealing the darkness of their own heart. He now employs a parable foretelling their destruction, given their rejection of the prophets and their rejection of him. He has now challenged their very knowledge of Scripture. Public humiliation, public embarrassment. They retreat. 
This is not a full surrender. This is but a temporary retreat. Because when we come to chapter 14, verse 1, Wednesday, the very next day, we read that these same men, the scribes, the elders, and the priests, they were looking, plotting, seeking to arrest him by stealth. Think of a stealth fighter. Comes in by secret, gets out. They were seeking, plotting to arrest him by stealth so that they could kill him. They could kill him. Now, there are three points of application. We've wrestled with the text. We understand precisely what is going on here. There are three points of application that I want to make. The two are somewhat indirect. The third, very direct. First point of application is this. In these verses, Jesus destroys two common myths about God. He destroys two. This is indirect, but very important. He destroys two common myths concerning God. The first myth that he destroys is this. God is super popular. That is a myth. A myth that is very prevalent today. God is super popular. What do I mean by that? I mean simply 92, 93% of Americans claim to believe in God. I think about 93% claim to believe in God. And I suppose of, that, of, of all those people, uh, the vast majority, perhaps to a man, to a woman, would also say they love God. That is a myth. The notion, the idea that God is super popular is a myth that the Lord Jesus utterly destroys in these verses. How does he do that? He shows us how Israel received the prophets throughout the entire Old Testament. Some they abused, some they imprisoned, some they killed. And their rejection of God's messengers now culminates in their rejection of him. Please understand this, friend. It's the starting point of the gospel. Please, focus in. This is the starting point of the gospel. Israel's rejection of God, as seen in their rejection of the Lord Jesus, in their rejection of all the prophets, is indicative of the world's response and attitude toward God. Make no mistake, friend. Please make no mistake. Completely hypothetically speaking, if the incarnation were to occur today and Jesus were to come among us, we would find a way to kill him. Do you understand that? Here we come to the depravity of the human heart. This idea, 93% of Americans, oh, they believe in God. They have warm, fuzzy feelings about God. And sure, they love God. It is a myth, absolute myth. The natural posture and, and state and predicament and condition of the human heart is absolute enmity toward God. People love the figment of their imagination that they've created. They love the God that they've created for themselves. But by nature, we despise the God of Scripture. And let me repeat it. If Jesus were to come among us today, we would find a way to kill him. The second myth that Jesus destroys is this. God is omni-tolerant. God is omni-tolerant. God is really nice. Big glorified Santa Claus. Really nice. God is safe. God is tame. God is friendly. 
I just get a warm, fuzzy feeling every time I think about this God who just wants the best for me. Uh, this is a, a myth. This idea that God is omnitolerant, that he is super nice, really nice, meaning what? He's indulgent. That's what most people mean by it. When people have this idea, this notion of God is really nice, really safe, really tame, what they mean by that is God is indulgent, meaning what? God winks at my sin. God just pats me on the head and encourages me and invites me to do, to do the best, and he'll kind of take care of the rest. He's a super coach, a super counselor who's watching over me and is there to kind of help me navigate the problems and the troubled, troubled waters in life. And he's there when I need him, otherwise I can ignore him. But he doesn't really make any demands of me. He doesn't really require anything of me. He's just there, he has my best interests in view, and he is really nice. That is a myth that the Lord Jesus obliterates in these verses. God is not omnitolerant. He makes it clear in this parable. You have rejected my prophets of old. You have rejected me. The question is this. What will the owner of the vineyard do? This is a stumbling stone. Christ is the cornerstone. The cornerstone has become a stumbling stone for so many. This is where so many people stumble. Friend, what do you think God is going to do? We have rejected His Son, crucified His Son. What will He do? We have a foretaste in A.D. 70. We have the fulfillment of what Jesus predicts here in A.D. 70. The absolute destruction, obliteration of the city of Jerusalem and the temple and the decimation of the Israelites and the Jews. Friend, that was God's doing. That was the omnitolerant God's doing. What do we think God's going to do? That destruction of Jerusalem is a preview of the great and terrible day of the Lord that is coming. What do you think God is going to do with sinners? What do you think God is going to do with those who belittle His Son? What do you think God is going to do with those who couldn't care less what happened at Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago? What do you think God is going to do to those who just blow through life without any regard for Him, without any regard for His Word, without any regard for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? What do you think God is going to do to those who by their actions and complete disregard for Christ today confirm His crucifixion 2,000 years ago? What do we think is going to happen? Judgment is coming. This myth that God is omnitolerant, just loves everybody, super nice to everybody, except Hitler and one or two others who are really bad, but everybody else gets in. This is a myth. There is one name under heaven by which we must be saved. We must flee to the rock. Flee to the cornerstone. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is in Christ alone we find reconciliation and peace with God. There is no peace with God outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no peace with God apart from heartfelt repentance and a turning to Christ and faith in Him alone. God is not omnitolerant. Judgment is coming. 
A day that He decreed before the foundation of the world. And a day, friend, I don't care how good you think your life is. A day in which God will judge the secrets of your heart. Your secrets. You would shrivel up and disappear if your secrets were laid bare this morning. They are laid bare before God. There is no tolerance. There is no salvation. There is no favor. There is no forgiveness outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second point of application. Don't miss it, friend, please. Jesus destroys two common myths concerning truth. First myth is this. Neutrality is commendable. That's a myth. Neutrality is commendable. And so Jesus asks the religious leaders this question. John's baptism, from above or from below? From God or from man? We do not know. Oh, they're so humble. Well, this is beyond our pay scale. Uh, we, We don't want to speak in terms of absolutes. We don't want to appear to be dogmatic. And so we'll be humble. Take the humble road, the humble. We can't really be sure about these things. We need more time to consider these things. After all, there are many ways and many angles from which we could come at this thing. We do not know. And so the agnostic today, the individual who says, well, maybe God is there, but we can't know. And all religions sort of lead to God. And it doesn't really matter uh, what you believe. You know, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's all negotiable anyway. And truth, well, it's all relative anyway. And these people hide behind a guise of humility. My friend, when it comes to the holiness of God, when it comes to the veracity and faithfulness of Scripture, when it comes to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by God, when it comes to the atonement of Christ, to claim neutrality is to reject these things. Make no mistakes about it, friend. If you're here this morning and you, and you just sort of lean toward that relativistic spirit and mindset, well, you know, I'm an enlightened one, and uh, I've seen things and read things that nobody else has seen or read, and I understand there's so many ways of coming at this. And I, you know, in my humility, well, we can't really be sure about these things. Understand, friend, that that, that posture, there is, no, there is actually no such thing, thing as neutrality. To cra- claim neutrality when it comes to the holiness of God, the judgment of God, the crucifixion of Christ, the atonement of Christ, and salvation by faith alone, to claim neutrality is to reject these things. Neutrality is commendable. That is a myth that the Lord Jesus destroys in this parable. He destroys also this myth concerning truth. Sincerity is commendable. Well, as long as I'm sincere in what I believe, I might be sincerely wrong, but as long as I'm sincere, then that will be okay with God. will score me points. You know, this is what I've kind of thought. This is how I figured it out in my own mind. I've dabbled in this, taken a little bit from this, a little bit from that, looked into this, and just sort of this amalgamation, this, this big toss salad of ideas. And I, I believe this sincerely. And God knows I'm sincere. And as long as I'm sincere, well, that is commendable. Friend, God sent, in the context of the parable, He sent His servants, the prophets, culminating these prophets in John the Baptist. He then sent His beloved Son, In those prophets and in his beloved son, we have God's full and final revelation to man. And we find that revelation in this book. To seek truth anywhere other than in this book, I don't care how sincerely you do that. 
It is to reject God. He has spoken. He has spoken in past generations in many ways through the prophets. He has spoken in these last days through His Son. He has revealed His name, and His name is revealed in the Scriptures. Hence, it is the Word of God. And to hide behind this supposed shelter, well, as long as I'm sincere, I can pretty well believe whatever I want. And we hear, we hear so many strange things today, don't we, when different ones are interviewed. Well, I know he's here watching me, and I know this, and I know that. All these people develop their religion and their spirituality, and all these things, this hodgepodge of belief. None of it fixed in the Word of God. And everybody applauds and claps and looks at them and, and, and who's and awes. And it's all an absolute absurdity. Sincerity is not commendable. When it comes to the Word of God, there is no other source of truth. And that truth has come to us by way of the prophets and culminated in the full and final revelation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the third point of application, the 11th verse of chapter 12, Jesus declares that God's work is marvelous. God's work is marvelous. Marvelous. Wonderful. Amazing, uh, incomprehensible. Remember years ago, Allison and I on a cold winter's night, this is almost 20 years ago, driving on a country road between the cities of uh, Peterborough and Markham in Ontario. And all of a sudden there was this, we were engulfed in, in light. No epiphany here, don't worry, sit easy. We were engulfed in light. And we pulled the car over to the side of the road and got out of the car and stared up into the sky And at the center point in the sky, there was light just streaming down all around us. It was as if we were in a dome. This stream of light of white and green just absolutely surrounded us. Everything lit up. It's what we call aurora, the northern light. It was absolutely incomprehensible. Amazing, marvelous, wonderful. That is the thought that Jesus employs here. The stone, him, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Marvelous, why? Marvelous because it reveals God's amazing patience. God isn't omnitolerant. A day of judgment is coming. Never forget this. That day of judgment should have come a long time ago. God is patient, amazing patient. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet. He has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and His patience continues to superabound towards sinners. Martin Luther stated, If I were God and the world had treated me as it treated Him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. Well, that is coming. That is coming. But God abounds in patience. Understand this, friend, the words of the Apostle Paul, the kindness of God, the patience of God. The patience of God has a purpose. Romans 2, verse 4, I think. It is to lead us to repentance. Lead us to repentance. Friend, do you understand how patient God has been with you? How many times have you sinned against God? Willingly, consciously, 
How many times? How many times have you just downright ignored what you know God's will is as revealed in His Word? How many times have you neglected God? How many times by our actions and our words have we actually despised the blood of Christ? And yet here you are, and God continues to abound in patience. And His patience, His kindness has this purpose. It is to lead us to repentance. Amazing patience. So the Lord's work, not only does it reveal His amazing patience, it reveals His amazing grace. Long after, really a Maybe 40 days after this event, uh, Peter is in Jerusalem and he has been arrested for preaching in the name of Christ. And he stands before these same men, the same scribes, the same elders, and the same priests. And he says the following, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God's amazing grace. God exalts what man rejects. God magnifies what man despises. And God glorifies what man humiliates. Here is the marvel, friend. I'm after your sense of amazement. Here is the amazement. Here is what is marvelous in our eyes, the Lord's doing. Our rejection, man's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ has actually become the means of our reconciliation with God. Do we understand that? Man's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ actually becomes the means of of our reconciliation to God. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I used to sing a hymn years ago, went like this. He took my sins and my sorrow. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Our Father, we do pray this day as we have delved into your word, read it, heard it, proclaimed it. We pray that we might also eat it. That is, may it be implanted deep within our hearts. We pray that you would enlarge our hearts to love the Lord Jesus more. So many idols in our hearts, so many competitors, so many things that rival our affection for the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would tear them all down and mortify them. And may we truly love him as we ought. May we love him fully. May we love him entirely. May we love him completely. And we ask that you grant this by your spirit. Open our minds to a greater understanding of your word and to the gospel and to your great plan of redemption and salvation in Christ. We pray, our Father, that you be glorified in us and in our midst as we ask it in the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.